From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Collective bargaining rights are protected again for Defense Department employees after an executive order from President Biden. That executive order rescinded an order former President Trump signed that gave the Secretary of Defense the ability to exempt jobs from collective bargaining. GovExec reports Trump administration defense officials never used the ability the EO gave them. The Energy Department has a new leader. The Senate's confirmed former governor of Michigan, Jennifer Granholm, 64-35. Granholm said at her confirmation hearing last month she'd advocate new wind and solar technology. Marijuana use isn't an automatic disqualifier from a federal job anymore. New guidance from the Office of Personnel Management says agencies should look at past use, including where when a candidate has recently stopped, differently than ongoing use. GovExec reports the guidance says in some cases a commitment to stop using may be enough to let an agency hire a candidate. The Army Combat Capabilities Development Command has a new future of work concept that encourages soldiers to work where and when they're most productive. The concept includes remote work, flexible schedules, and new technology. John Willison is deputy to the commanding general of the Army's Combat Capabilities Development Command. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I quote from the introduction to this work, it's important that we define an enduring future of work concept beyond the current pandemic. At what point during the pandemic did you start to think about beyond the pandemic? Oh, it's a great question. And first, let me say thank you for the opportunity to talk about something we're, we're really excited about. We've got a workforce of 15,000 government employees. It's over 25,000 overall. Um, and, and, and being a research development in an engineering organization, um, you know, it's a learning organization. So as we went into the pandemic almost exactly a year ago, um, you know, initially we're leading way, our way through it, making sure we are protecting the safety and the health of our employees, but also continuing the, the, our important mission. So as we got into the summer period, we realized people were going to be adjusting based on, on typical summer, and this was no typical summer. But really, when we started getting into the July-August timeframe and, and looking at our workforce and, and their concerns about the fall, the first step we took was in, in early August to assure our workforce that through at least December of last year that we were going to work, uh, majority of folks were going to work remotely as much as possible, if not all of the time. And so that was step one, give our, give our workforce some assurance, give us some space to see then during that period how we were going to balance between taking care of our workforce as well also executing our mission. And then also at that time frame, what we told our workforce is in, in that August time frame, you're going to work remotely through the end of December, except by exception. And then as we get into that December, January time frame, we're going to release a future of work concept that looks at how we're going to operate into the new year and also beyond the pandemic. You have a, a number of categories in this work, and we have a link to it at govmatters.tv slash resources. The why and the what of your future work are staying the same, remains constant. You're changing up the where, the how, the who, and the when. How did you examine each of those components, John, to decide what you wanted to do moving forward? Uh, great. And so, you know, again, 
as a, as a largely scientific organization, ideally what you would do is you, you'd run an experiment. And so, so we were basically handed an experiment, a year-long experiment, to, to look at really within those four areas that we think we want to adapt for the future, where we've got room to adapt. And so the where really drove everything first. You know, and so we got to saying, work where you're most productive. And that's going to be different for different people, but, but it's a simplifying uh, rallying construct to say, work where you're most productive, followed quickly then by work when you're most productive, providing flexibility for our workforce to be productive where and when they can be, both as an individual, but also as a team. Then you get into who, right? And so one of the things is we allow people to work where they're most productive. That allows us to take some of our work to the talent where it exists anywhere. And so we talk about attracting and obtaining the best talent anywhere and really being more, even more broadly diverse and inclusive than we've been. And then that finally leads to how, and we see this as really opening up the doors to connect people virtually, connect people in a more agile way to really get after some of the innovation that we get after being part of Army Futures Command and part of DEFCON. Another important element of this is uh, is this quote. Uh, the, an important tenet is the shift from reactively filling vacancies to proactively building the talent needed to execute the DEVCOM mission now and in the future. What has that change meant culturally for you, John? And have you had to do things tactically to make that change? Uh, great question. So we started a talent management initiative three and a half years ago. And there, and there was two important constructs that came out of that. The first is this talent management life cycle of defining the talent that you need, assessing the talent you have against the talent you need, acquiring talent you need to fill some gaps, develop our talent, and then engage our talent. And the other important construct that came out of there is in that defined part, the very, the very important first step is to define the competencies in our space. So for us, we've got a very diverse command. So we've got over 50 technical competencies, anywhere from cyber to energetics and warheads to autonomy and robotics, to soldier performance, to, to synthetic biology. And so those competency-based strategies really become the construct for us to look at what talent we need and then where we have gaps, where we can be creative to bring people here or take our work to people where they exist. So we're opening up the available talent pool as broadly as possible. We're starting to run out of time, John. How will you measure the success of this on an ongoing basis? You write early on that this is a fluid document, that it will evolve over time. How will you measure the results to make sure you're getting what you want? Right, so, so we, are, uh, we are an organization, like I said, of 15,000 government employees, uh, most of them civilian, as well as importantly, industry and, and academic partners. Right, and so, so we're a people organization and the Army's number one priority is people. So, so the largest way we're gonna measure this is how well we're doing in the competition to attract and retain talent. And so again, this assessment based on competencies where we're looking quarterly at the health of our talent within each of those competencies, one important measure. And then the second obvious measure is how we doing in implementing our critical mission for the Army and that is to maintain its current competitive edge as well as innovating for the future. And so that's more of an output-based measure, but it's gonna be completely enabled by the people that we have and the flexibilities we give them on working where and when they're most productive. John, congratulations on your work and thanks very much for coming on to talk about it. Appreciate your time. Uh, thank you again for the opportunity. We're excited as we move forward.
can find a link to the future of work concept, govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, more people in the thrift savings plan than ever. Straight ahead on Government Matters, handling the new deluge of new users. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Participation in the thrift savings plan is at an all-time high. The FERS participation rates 94% and the rates for active duty military are up to nearly 77%. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, you and I probably both remember the all-time high song, Rita Coolidge. I thought of that as soon as I read these numbers. What does this say that you're, especially the military rate, 77%, you and I have only been talking about military being able to join the TSP for two, three years now? What it says is the power of automatic enrollment. Um, people get enrolled and they, they largely set it and forget it, which when you're doing a retirement plan is pretty much what you want. You don't want to ignore it entirely, but you do want to just do your stuff and move on. Number of issues uh, taken up at the board this month. One of them that people are concerned about, obviously, is security. Everybody's concerned all across the government about security. And it looks like you've made uh, some improvements, according to the auditors and not just yourselves, in your security posture. FISMA compliance uh, looking uh, pretty strong. Yes, we were really, as we've been talking about this for several years, and the board has spent um, many years some money, a lot of money, a fair amount of money and a lot of work to get our information security program where we wanted it. We got seven, um, seven out of eight are at fours, which is managed and measurable. Um, and we're, we're really pleased with that, obviously. Uh, it, it demonstrates, and, and as the auditor said, we have an effective uh, program of information security. Uh, we're not going to rest on our laurels. The the one where we're not at a four was continuity planning. And obviously with the pandemic, we have proven that our continuity is working just fine. However, uh, the auditors needed to do some testing and needed to do some failovers of systems, which, you know, during a pandemic, maybe not the smartest thing for us to do, start playing with systems. But that's where we're really going to put some focus this coming year. Seven out of these audit, eight audit areas at fours, as you said, um, and that last one at a two, this scale is one to five. Is there a plan to try to move all of these to fives or does at some point in time, does that become uh, more difficult to do than it is than is worth the investment? That's exactly the discussion we're having. Um, we want to consolidate the fours. There's a real the the questions each each uh, domain has a has a set of questions. We want to consolidate the fours within those domains. And then we will discuss, the board will discuss whether or not moving to fives is worth the money because it becomes, um, as you said, much more difficult and much more um, uh, potentially costly to do. And it's not clear that the return on the investment is worth it that you get additional security that is worth the, the money and the time. Another project underway at the TSP is the multi-asset manager project. You have uh, a new uh, asset manager coming on board. What's the, what does that look like? Where is that? 
Um, we, uh, the board several years ago decided to have two asset managers for each fund because they wanted to make sure that if there was this uh, black swan event that somehow BlackRock stopped being able to trade, that, that we would have a second manager who could keep doing that. So we awarded that second contract to State Street back in the fall. Um, we've been working through all of the interconnection, security, all of that sort of stuff. And starting in April, we will transfer 10% uh, of the C fund to State Street, and then 20% uh, of the F, S, and I funds uh, as we move out into the summer. Will State Street um, measure the funds the same way? They don't, they're not gonna have it, like the construct of the C fund, for example, won't be different under their management than no. it is under BlackRock, right? Right. They will both be managing the funds to the same index. That It's just two different managers, but no difference in the underlying funds. What's the benefit to the participant for having that spread around a little bit, Kim? The benefit really is a risk management strategy. Um, it, the participant shouldn't see any change to this, but again, should something happen and one manager not be able to trade, this ensures that participant trades still are made and still goes forward. We just have a couple of minutes left. You got some new metrics on call centers and stuff like that. What's that? How is that holding up uh, as a result of the pandemic? As a result of the pandemic, it's been fine. The ice storm in Texas really um, knocked us for a loop a little bit in in uh, February. We had our service metrics is we answer the phone in 20 seconds, which is pretty fast. And the week of the ice storm where pretty much our entire call center that's located in Texas, whether you were working at home or whether you were working in, in the call center, if you have no power and no internet, it's pretty hard to do your job. Um, it took five minutes to answer the phone. So while it's longer than we wanted, um, it's still not uh, horrific, but we wanna provide the best service we can. And that was an average. So certainly there were people who were waiting longer and for that, we really apologize. Things are getting better now that people are able to get back to work. Kim Weaver, thanks very much as always. Thanks, Francis. You can find more from this month's TSP board meeting at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, a calendar stretch and a resources stretch at the IRS. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to make it happen during the busiest time of the year. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, Chuck Reddick, says his agency is ready to handle a third round of stimulus checks. If Congress approves President Biden's plan, it could happen during tax season. That's the busiest time of the year for the IRS. Danny Werfel's managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group, former acting commissioner of the IRS. Danny, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I don't mean to imply that the IRS or any agency can't do two important things at once, but is there a burden that will fall on the agency if the stimulus payments come at the same time they're processing returns? Absolutely. I mean, you you're also have to consider the fact that the uh, IRS systems are, are getting older and older. There's a compelling need to modernize them. 
you know, the workforce has been shrieking, shrinking as, uh, as Commissioner Reddick has pointed out. So you have a perfect storm where you have the, the, the very big task of running through the tax season, which is, you know, kind of a lot of moving pieces in uh, accepting and processing hundreds of millions of returns, while at the same time taking on a role that was not intended when those systems were developed and when the people were trained. So it is a lot to juggle. Some big numbers, some numbers that really struck me as interesting coming out of Commissioner Reddick's testimony and Jory Heckman reporting about him on Federal News Network. Um, 61,000 employees teleworking during the pandemic. You told me before we went on the air that you had 90,000 employees total working for you when you were there. That's two-thirds of the workforce working remotely. And I haven't heard any anecdotal stories about any kinds of um, uh, problems with uh, customer service at the IRS. I haven't heard any kinds of IT issues, even given the antiquated technology they have. What's that say to you about how the agency was able to pivot? Well, it's always been a resilient uh, agency. Um, the culture of the organization is that everyone from the revenue agent all the way up to the commissioner's office is completely dedicated to making sure that uh, that the process runs well. I had a feeling when I was there that that inspiration of like the post uh, the postal worker, you know, neither rain nor sleep. And I think there's a sense in the IRS that uh, that they have to figure things out and get things done. And it's a testament to their to their dedication uh, to the mission. And so like other government agencies, they're finding workarounds. Now, there are elements of the tax season. Uh, a lot of mail comes in as much as the IRS has pushed for much more digital electronic formats, you still have mail coming in. And so, you know, there'll be a, an increasing number of people that will have to be on the premises. Hopefully the timing works well with vaccines and other positive trends coming out of the, the, the COVID situation. But I would expect uh, if there's an organization in government that will figure out a solution to make these train schedules work, it's the IRS. Another number that uh, Commissioner Reddick shared with the committee that you put in context with that 90,000 number was this. IRS has seen its workforce shrink by more than 33,000 employees over the past decade. They've gone from 120, they lost a third of the workforce essentially. Is that, am, am I on the right track there? Is that correct? Yeah, and I saw it even when I was there. I mean, I was doing uh, site visits to uh, walk-in taxpayer assistance centers and the lines were very long, like almost around the block. And the reality is, is because each of those individual booths where you go meet with someone, they were about a third filled with with IRS employees because the others had uh, had retired or moved on, and there were hiring freezes that didn't allow the IRS to hire behind it. And uh, and the result is is that the the taxpayers who are looking for technical support to meet their tax obligations are are harmed by this. So there really needs to be, and I think those conversations have started to shift in the right direction. It's one thing to want the IRS to run the tax system and the nation's tax system effectively. And you really have to align the right resources, the people and the tools and the technology. It's a whole other thing to now ask the IRS not only to run the tax system, but to concurrently help with the distribu uh, distribution of, of payments 
uh, under the CARES Act and other COVID relief bills, which is which is terrific that, that, that we have an organization like the IRS that has the expertise and the comparative advantage to uh, to make payments to individuals. But in order to do both at the same time, we have to make sure that we're empowering and investing in the organization smartly. This doesn't mean making it bigger and more bureaucratic. It just means hiring the right people and giving them the right skill sets to carry out the very specific mission they need to carry out. We have about a minute left, Danny. You're not just an expert on the IRS, you're an expert on government management in general. And to that hiring freeze point you made a moment ago, Jory Story says a hiring freeze from 2011 to 2018 has created significant workforce challenges. Is this the, the backside, the bad side of hiring freezes across government organizations broadly that two, three, four, five years down the road, you see the, the negative uh, effects? Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things where, it, you know, often a hiring freeze is necessary in a moment of an acute budget challenge, but they need to be lifted um, at points to make sure that you're bringing in the right people to close gaps. I mean, there's no reason to create unnecessarily a mission critical risk because you're sticking to a hiring freeze that's uh, that's now out of date based on where we are with a budget. I mean, hiring freezes can come and go, but sustaining them for long periods of time, you really are just uh, hurting the organization and hurting the mission. And really, it's an unforced error to uh, to sustain a hiring freeze for that long and create unnecessary risk in a mission critical function like the nation's tax system. Danny Werfel, thanks very much as always. Francis, my pleasure. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. To get it, you text GOVMATTERS to 58671. Back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.